You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Aquatic Panda has been found working log-for-shell exploits against an academic institution. Apache fixes new log4j issues reported last week, and Microsoft also updates Windows Defender to address log4j risks. Cyber attacks, criminal or hacktivist in motivation, hit news outlets around the new year. Microsoft works on fixing a Y2K22 bug in on-premise exchange server. Andrea Little-Limbago from Interos on technology spheres of influence. Our guest is Mark Deus from Lumen's Black Lotus Labs with DDoS Insights. And CISA issues some ICS security advisories. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 3rd, 2022. CrowdStrike has found log-for-shell exploitation tools in the possession of Aquatic Panda, a Chinese government-operated threat group. The researchers explain, quote, Aquatic Panda is a Chinese-based targeted intrusion adversary with a dual mission of intelligence collection and industrial espionage. It has likely operated since at least May 2020. Aquatic Panda operations have primarily focused on entities in the telecommunications, technology, and government sectors. Aquatic Panda relies heavily on Cobalt Strike, and its toolset includes the unique Cobalt Strike downloader tracked as Fishmaster. Aquatic Panda has also been observed delivering NJ RAT payloads to targets. End quote. The affected organization was able to address the issue, patch the vulnerability, and disrupt the attempt. This isn't the first nation state exploitation of a Log4J issue. North Korean, Turkish, Iranian, and Russian units have all been reported to be active against the vulnerability. On December 28th, Checkmarks reported and Apache fixed a new arbitrary code execution vulnerability in Log4J. It's not, as Naked Security notes, an unauthorized remote code execution issue, which is probably among the reasons it's rated at moderate severity. An attacker would need to be authenticated inside the target in order to be able to take advantage of the flaw. Nonetheless, users would do well to upgrade their systems promptly. And Naked Security also suggests that it might be worth seeing if your organization could do without Log4J entirely. Quote, But we're going to suggest once again that if you have found Log4J in your ecosystem recently, especially on servers where you didn't even know it was there, that you should ask yourself the question, 
Do I genuinely need a multi-megabyte logging toolkit consisting of close to half a million lines of source code, or would something much more modest and easier to review do at least as well? That's not a criticism of Apache. It's merely a reminder that inherited security problems such as Log4Shell are often the unexpected side effect of a cybersecurity decision made years ago by someone from outside your company whom you've never met and never will. End quote. Sleeping Computer, Keeping Score, counts this as the fifth Log4J CVE that's been addressed in less than a month. And Microsoft last week issued new services designed to protect its users against exploitation of Log4J vulnerabilities. The company blogged on December 27th, quote, New capabilities in threat and vulnerability management, including a new advanced hunting schema and support for Linux, which requires updating the Microsoft Defender for Linux client, new Microsoft Defender for Containers solution. End quote. You can follow the CyberWire's pro coverage of the Log4J affair on the Stories page of the CyberWire website. Several media companies have been hit over the past week with cyber attacks that are interfering with publication. Reuters reports that the websites of Portugal's Expresso newspaper and SIC TV station, both owned by the media conglomerate Impressa, were taken down over the weekend by a ransomware attack. This one seems to be a straightforward criminal double extortion scam, thereby continuing 2021's big cybercrime trend into the new year. The Lapsus Group gang has claimed responsibility, and Impressa says it's working with the authorities. SC Magazine reports that last week Norway's Media, which owns some 50 newspapers and the ANB news agency, was hit with an unspecified cyber attack that disrupted printing. Media has also been working with the authorities since detecting the incident last Tuesday, but the group has been tight-lipped about both the nature of the data incident and the pace of its recovery. And Reuters reports that the Jerusalem Post was hit yesterday in an apparent hacktivist incident that came on the anniversary of the U.S. drone strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in 2020. The attack was a website defacement with a hand wearing a ring said to resemble one worn by General Soleimani, is shown shooting a missile downward, as if from the heavens, alongside the legend, We are close to you where you do not think about it. The Post is resolving the issue with its website. Microsoft is working to fix an issue with on-premise exchange servers that's been causing emails to hang in transport queues since January 1st. In an homage to the Y2K episode, those of a certain age will remember some are calling it Y2K22. Bleeping Computer says the problem arose because Microsoft used a signed int32 variable to store the value of the date, but the minimum value of dates in 2022 exceeds the maximum permissible value. Redmond explained, quote, We have addressed the issue causing messages to be stuck in transport queues of on-premises Exchange Server 2016 and Exchange Server 2019. The problem relates to a date check failure with the change of the new year, and is not a failure of the AV engine itself. This is not an issue with malware scanning or the malware engine, and it is not a security-related issue. The version checking performed against the signature file is causing the malware engine to crash, resulting in messages being stuck in transport queues. 
We have now created a solution to address the problem of messages stuck in transport queues on Exchange Server 2016 and Exchange Server 2019 because of a latent date issue in a signature file used by the malware scanning engine within Exchange Server. Customer action is required to implement this solution. End quote. A note in disclosure, Microsoft is a CyberWire sponsor. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, of course spent the holidays working to mitigate the risk of Log4J vulnerabilities in federal systems, but its more routine work also continued. On December 23rd, CISA released two industrial control system advisories. And finally, we wish all of you a happy, healthy, and prosperous new year as we open 2022. We hope you all got a Bitcoin in your stocking or at least a nice NFT. We hear those were all the rage for the holidays. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Mark Diaz is Director of Information Security and Threat Intelligence with Lumen's Black Lotus Labs. He and his colleagues recently released their third quarter DDoS report, and Mark Diaz joins us with some of the highlights. So some key things that, that I'd uh, highlight from the report that we observed in Q3 uh, was a increase in, in the number of complex attacks, meaning Typically, when we see an attack, there's many different types. There's reflective DDoS attacks, uh, and, and typically they tend to use, you know, in the past, have used a, like a single protocol for reflection. We're seeing a lot more uh, of uh, the different botnets using multiple protocols for, for reflection. And so that uh, is a, a trend in growth that we've seen uh, Q3 compared to others. 
Uh, we also scrubbed our, our uh, larger attack than, than prior uh, and had an increase in terms of bandwidth quarter over quarter, which was also interesting and, and concerning as well. And so those are, are a couple of key things that were in the report. Um, some things that occurred towards the end of Q3 and beginning of Q4 that um, were also of interest was a trend towards uh, uh, DDoS actors attacking services not commonly attacked by other actors. And so there are some targets towards the voice uh, and, and telecom industry in particular uh, that had some pretty significant impacts that, that we observed and, and uh, helped work to uh, mitigate and clean up as well. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, just in the past few days here, I've seen some reports of, um, I guess, extortion threats at uh, voice over IP companies. And uh, when you um, align that with the report that you and your team have put out here, I wonder, you know, were we doing some some tests here? Were these shots across the bow? To uh, Is there any relationship at all? Yeah, I'd say these attacks seem like uh, they are just the forefront of, of some future attacks that, that could come. Uh, they were definitely very successful in, in terms of uh, the impact that they had. And so uh, it is concerning that um, those actors, other actors, have, have observed uh, these, the success of these voice attacks could be targeting other services and, and um, other providers. What are your recommendations for organizations to dial in their, um, I don't know, the appropriate amount of risk management here when it comes to how much of an investment should they make towards blocking DDoS attempts here? Any words of wisdom there? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's always a uh, <laughs> that's a challenge where it's uh, something that's you know unique to that individual organization and their trade offs. Mm. In general, I'd recommend you know uh, having a DDoS mitigation service in place for key services that that are business critical, or if not, having one that is capable of being turned up very quickly. Um, we at Lumen have been working hard to make our DDoS services, um, the provisioning fully automated, and we do emergency turnups uh, in very quick timeframes. And so uh, that to me is key because extortion based DDoS attacks, letters could come in at any time, and uh, you know, actors can be threatening. Well, that's as sure as a nice service you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it on mm. your most important business day <laughs> on this week. Right. And we can you know, make that not happen if you send us this much Bitcoin to this address <laughs> or you know, doing the same thing while an attack is actually active and, and having a, bu- a business impact. And so it's far much better to ha- uh, at least be prepared and know what are you going to do in those circumstances and who are you going to work with and how are you going to, to mitigate that attack without having to go you know, pay the ransom. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? Is it, do you suspect that the, the DDoS attacks will continue to grow in size and, and uh, folks like you will keep pace with them? Or are there, are there ways that we, this may become something that uh, you know, we look back on and, and say, well, remember when those things used to happen? <laughs> it's always hard to predict the future. I mean, my my yeah. speculation with it would be, yeah, I mean, obviously DDoS attacks and, and those trends are going to continue, but we've been seeing a lot of the less sophisticated actors realize, hey, I could actually make money at this. And so mm-hmm. more extortion type of attacks and those sorts of type of attacks continuing uh, in the coming year, if, if I had to guess, and something that, uh, that we'd see is being more of a trend, um, and especially towards the services not typically attacked, right? Um, just as we as a corporate business look for ways we can be differentiated, we're seeing actors uh, and DDoS actors in particular try to find ways that they, they can differentiate themselves from the types of attacks they launch as, as well as the, the degree of success they can have in, in getting an extortion payment out of, out of those things. 
That's Mark Dias from Lumen's Black Lotus Labs. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She's the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Um, you know, I wanted to touch today on uh, sort of the regulatory things that are going on globally, touching on some of the different spheres, hardware, software, uh, restrictions on trade, who's allowed to have what in, in different people's telecommunication systems. Seems to me like there's a lot of action in this area right now, and you're a good person to t- touch base with on this. What's what's on your radar right now? Yeah, it is, and it's one of those things that you, you almost, it comes out almost like dripping from different places here and there. But when you start looking at the whole picture, it becomes fairly overwhelming and obvious that there are major changes going on. And you know, to the point that it really is the area where we're seeing industrial policy making a very big comeback uh, over the course of this, you know, the last two years and really will continue going forward. And what that means you know, for you know, those of us in the cybersecurity community, it's really the industrial policy is focused on that technology and the software, the hardware, and just trusted technologies within your own ecosystems. It's really become quite a prominent tool to help ensure that, and it's almost to the point where, I know we've talked a lot about you know, the weaponization of cyber, and that is something that garnered a ton of discussion for a while and almost you know, is taken for granted now. We're seeing the same thing starting to happen and evolve in trade policy as, as it pertains to technologies. Hmm. And so just a good example of that would be, uh, there's a tech partnership uh, called the Quad, which is India, Japan, Australia, and U.S., really focused on helping create more resilient and trusted technologies, um, collaboration and networks across those, those countries. And I think that that's just one of several instances that we're seeing. And then even just within the U.S., there's a huge whole-of-government approach from DOD, Treasury, Commerce, State Department, FCC, all focused on ensuring trusted technologies are within the supply chain and within, and within the ecosystem, both of the government, the government's providers, and then within U.S. companies as well. Uh, and even just sort of the, a good example is just commerce alone uh, has basically on their deny list has over 300 different Chinese com- companies that are part of that. And we hear a lot about, you know, Huawei, perhaps ETE. But when you get to the, when you start thinking about it, it's really that that broad to everything from like drone makers to surveillance companies. Uh, it's a whole range of technology that uh, te- technological companies that are that are under there. Yeah. And I mean, it's. It has the potential to really be a serious tension there. With, I mean, so much of our stuff, the stuff we rely on day to day. I'm, I'm looking at my mobile device, my iPhone. You know, these things they come out of China, and uh, it's not like we can just switch to a different nation to provide those. You know, by turning a dial. No, and I think that's where it's, it's going to be. You know, something to keep an eye on is 
you know, on the one hand, where does it make sense to maintain those ties? Because I, I think that any kind of, you know, there's, there's too many just interdependencies, right, to do a complete divide. But at the same mm-hmm. time, there is going to have to be, you know, based on just the regulatory framework and how everything is evolving, you know, companies really do need to think about what, the, what their plan is to, to deal with these regulations so they're not in compliance fi- problems, but also uh, there are national security issues that, that come along with that as well. Uh, the government has talked about funding some aspects of this because the rip and re- especially for telecoms, um, the rip and rip replaces in the billions by by estimates. I mean, it's been, if you think about some of the small companies, you know, that's just going to be very very hard. So there is a focus on the government providing uh, various kinds of funding for that, but at the same time, it, you know, it, while it is going to be a big investment, you know, it's almost a necessity at least the way the regulatory framework is, is evolving right now. Um, you know, Australia recently released their list of core technologies that they're focusing on. And basically, a you know, fundamental belief within those technologies is focusing on collaboration with like-minded nations. And that's a, that's a term that you're going to just continue to hear. We've heard it a fair amount, but we're going to keep hearing that as far as really what it means is you know, the, the like-minded nations, those, the alliance of the democracies, really. What may fall into a democracy then becomes the next question uh, based on various <laughs> criteria and so forth, because... You know, there are different, like, you know, Australia, for instance, has the anti-encryption law, right? And so how does that play into, you know, basic data security um, for those companies in the U.S.? So there, there are going to be a lot of interesting, you know, conflicts within democracies themselves as we try and figure out what that trusted network may look like. And, you know, in, in, yeah. in its case, you know, China's doing something very similar. It basically has a strategy to lay out to replace U.S. and foreign technology with their own. And I suppose, I mean, along with that are, are going to come ramping up manufacturing capabilities within various nations as well. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the rip and replace. I mean, you can only do that so fast. Right. And that's why I mean, you can't do it alone. And I think that's the key thing that gets lost in a lot of these conversations is that it really does take a community. And this is where I, I try and focus on the notion of collective resilience, where we actually need to, you know, we need to be working together. We cannot be doing all this alone. We're all too interdependent. It doesn't makes sense financially, for efficiency, for resilience, for so many different reasons. Uh, so we need to f- identify those areas where, you know, comparative advantage exists and, and leverage those. And that's where, hopefully, you know, we continue to have more of these discussions, uh, you know, at, at the governmental level, but I would even argue at the private sector level. What the, can the private sector do both, you know, across, you know, uh, with their peers for companies, but also across within, or down within their supply chain? Because there are things that the companies themselves can also do across their entire supply chain to help incentivize, encourage their own suppliers to um, adhere to some of these trusted technology and security protocols. And we really just haven't taken a holistic view on that and how to really create greater collective resilience in this area um, for, the, for the government and for the private sector. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things going, going on there over the next year. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. 
The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey. To get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.